Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks, except when we don't technically talk about Excalibur, which is what we're doing this week. This week, we are covering Marvel Comics Presents 101 to 108, Male Bonding, in which Kurt goes back to the circus, finds an unexpected old friend, and gives him a big wet hug. Male Bonding was originally published between April and August 1992, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, Gene Colan on pencils, Al Williamson on inks, Kelly Covers on colors, Michael Higgins on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. We didn't lie to you, folks. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. You laughed at them, shuddered at them, and yet, but for the accident of birth, you might be even as they are. They did not ask to be brought into the world, but into the world they came. Their code is a law unto themselves. Offend one, and you offend them all. And now, folks, if you'll just step this way, you are about to witness the most amazing, the most astounding living monstrosity of all time. I've been threatening to cover this story for a while on the pod, and I make the schedules, so here we are with an absolutely perfectly placed guest who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your regular performers. I am Dr. Anna Bapard. I love talking about gender and sexuality and comics and pop culture. I also love circuses and monsters and Gene Colan and the relationship between my unofficial client, Kurt Bogner, and his bestie, James Howlett, sometimes known as Patch, sometimes known as Logan always known as Wolverine, all of which are on today's playbill. But before we can get to the main event, we need to get through our intros. I am, as always, joined in the center ring by Mav. The floor is yours. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And I am also a scholar of pop culture and comics and stuff here and on another podcast called Fox Popcast. And Anna told you all the things that she loves. I love Sam Keith. They're the things that I'm yeah. going to talk about that I hate. <laughs> I hate when, when I am promised something by a cover and then the cover <laughs> yep. doesn't deliver um i'm a big sam keith fan the max is brilliant it is it's absolutely a, it is it is a it is a singular achievement in comics and this is not that sam keith does the cover of every single issue of this story 
and nothing else. And I feel I feel let down and, and disturbed <laughs> by that. I, I don't like fill-in issues. And, you know, my, my, my dislike of Marvel Comics Presents is because it was the let's take the concept of a fill-in issue and make it a full a full book. And I'm not a fan of Scott Lobdell. He's going to listen to me say that one day, and he's probably going to come after me because I've mentioned it on too many of our episodes. <laughs> so, so this is weird to me, and I'm 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 very curious as to why we're doing this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I, I I have I have a suspicion. I know why. We'll see. But um, that's that's where I'm at. <laughs> I mean, I'm also disappointed that there wasn't nearly as much tail bondage as there was on the Sam Keith covers, but <laughs> Andrew, there are, please. There are Tumblr threads that we could have we could have spent an episode on and said, which would have been which would have been fine. <laughs> Andrew, please reintroduce your expertise. Uh, hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont Run, a big social media micro-publishing endeavor. I'm also an expert on equine calculus, though, which is probably a thing, and would like to open by ruining some stuff. Wolverine weighs 300 pounds. Kurt yes. weighs 195. Mm -hmm. A large draft horse can carry 400 pounds max. And the horse depicted in this issue is not a large draft horse. The usual rule of thumb is that a horse can support 20% of its body weight, meaning a horse would need to be 2,475 pounds in order to carry the combined weight of Logan and Kurt. Interestingly, this is not technically impossible. The heaviest horse in recent history was a Belgian draft named Big Jake, weighing in at 2,600 pounds <laughs> prior to his death last year. Rest in peace. Oh, I saw that. I actually, I, I, true story. I saw that. On, I saw that story. <laughs> but horses of that size have severe health problems and yes. can't actually support that kind of burden. Thus, any romantic or sexual joy that a reader takes in this scene must thereby sit heavily, literally and metaphorically, on a beleaguered animal who will no doubt have to be put down off panel as soon as the scene is over, just from shouldering the weight of the Kurt slash Logan fandom. I thought I thought I was going to be the meanest person today, but but thank you, Andrew, for <laughs> drawing the ire away from me. Yes. Thank you so much for for your expertise, Andrew. I really appreciate that. I'm sure everyone will. <laughs> So, it's just the power of love, what can I say? Our troupe is joined this week by a super smart scholar working on a book we're all going to want to rush to read. The pod mm -hmm. is enthusiastic to welcome Dr. Christopher Michael Roman. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'll give our listeners a little intro to your expertise. Dr. Christopher Michael Roman is a professor of English and Graduate Studies Coordinator at Kent State University. He specializes in comics and the graphic novel, LGBTQ plus literature, and queer theory. He's recently segued from work in medieval studies, including a co-edited collection titled Medieval Futurity, Essays for the Future of a Queer Medieval Studies, to focus on comic studies, writing primarily about sexuality and gender in superhero comics. His forthcoming work includes a book-length study on queering wolverine he's also got articles in the works on jubilee and her critique of mutant normativity in x-men the animated series the representation of artificial intelligence as self in iron man and race and police brutality in nk jemison's far sector all of that sounds awesome and there's so much we're excited to chat with you about today chris but i'm also as always excited to chat origin stories so hit us with yours what's the origin of your love affair with comics you know, I, I really had to think about that. And, and so I have to take you back to the magical year of um, 1984. I think I'm about 10 years old. 
that is the year I discovered Transformers. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, so same Spinner, age as me, so that would be about right. Yeah. <laughs> so so Spinner, you know, Spinner Rack kind of thing, right? Um, I didn't have like you know, I was ten, so I didn't have a pole. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so, and I think so. I, I I grew up sort of you know working class poor, and so Transformers the toys were really expensive. Yeah. Um, and so I only had like a handful of them, and I think the comic kind of opened up like sort of new worlds for me in terms of Transformers because I just love them so much. So I think that's what starts it. And then I got a paper route. <laughs> so flash forward like four years. So I'm about 14. And I just, you know, and, and I had a good friend who was really into Ghost Rider. And so he interested me to Ghost Rider. And I was kind of like, I was intrigued. Uh, but then I was allowed to ride the bus to downtown Pittsburgh. And I was uh, introduced to the Ides comic book store, which I believe oh, I still yes. there. It, uh, is, it is, though the owner died last year. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, and I love that shop. That was fantastic. And that just totally opened my world to comics. So that's when I really started to uh, to collect X-Men and Avengers and, and Spider-Man and, and, those, and that, that kind of very Marvel centric um, at that time. I still am, actually. And so that's that's sort of my origin story in terms of. of you know, I was young and then, and then it kind of carried on through there. Like I, I'll say, um, like it kind of ebbs and flows for when I had money. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so when I was in college in grad school, like I didn't have a, you know, I didn't really have a, uh, income very much. So it would be like an occasional comic. So I kind of missed out on like the nineties a bit. So I've had to go back and see what I've missed. Wasn't much. <laughs> <laughs> other than today's story and a lot of Excalibur. Oh, <laughs> uh, and so I've kind of gone back and like I kind of, I like in terms of being like a like a big mutant fan. Like I totally missed out on Age of Apocalypse, so I had to go back and I, I ended up mm-hmm. buying the omnibus for that. Mm. Uh, I was like, oh, so that's what it, this was all about. So anyway, and then you know I got a job and and then I I found a local comic book shop and and then have a have a significant pool now that I have like you know real money. So like I'm you know I'm, I'm one of those sort of middle aged men who've rediscovered their childhood <laughs> life, uh, and then I guess this is sort of part of like a, part two like my origin story. Like I've kind of moved into doing this like professionally after sort of uh, working in medieval studies for like twenty years. I, I, the pandemic kind of really made me rethink what I wanted to do with the second half of my career, and I just kind of was done writing about the Middle Ages. I just kind of got bored. And so I was like, you know, I've always done like some element of comics or graphic novels in like so many of my classes, you know, uh, you know, in like uh, LGBT literature, we would do Alison Bechdel or a number of, of different stuff over the years. And I was like, well, I, you know, I really love this stuff. Why don't I think about, you know, writing about this? And that kind of just opened up this new avenue of work for me. I feel like I've got three sort of phases of origin. Yeah. And so now, like, you know, I'm still a big fan. I love my comics, but now I get to write about them, too. Um, mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> my wife likes to joke that I always turn my hobbies into work. <laughs> yep. and that's great. You know, so, so, so now here we are. I've got a book hopefully coming out next year. You know, I've got a bunch of articles I'm working on. And I'm just I'm having like I feel reinvigorated, especially in sort of the middle slump of, of the, you know, like some people slump at the middle of a career. And I feel like, oh, I've got, you know. These all these new opportunities. I did a queer comics class, a graduate seminar last spring that was like the most attended or most enrolled graduate seminar like we've ever had. <laughs> uh, it was like, I was like, usually we have like, you know, six, seven students in a grad seminar. 
and this had 18, which is just huge for, for my university. And it was amazing. And it was during the pandemic too. So it was online. And even then it was great. You know, like the students did some fantastic work. Some of them made comics as their final project. It was, it was just amazing. So it's like, okay, this is, this is where I should be moving. I was going to make some joke about like, oh, it's so exciting to be catching you sort of like still sort of relatively at the beginning of your career in comics academia when we're all such withered husks over here. And I was like, no, that's not true. I still get so excited teaching and writing about mm -hmm. comics. And I still have those moments of like, oh my God, I get to write a whole book chapter about Jack Kirby's Mr. Miracle and themes of kink and bondage therein. And what is my life? My life is amazing. <laughs> It's like my 12 year old self would have been so proud of me. If I could find a way to make a little bit more money doing it, it would be great. Yeah. But still. I mean, it's the same. There's a quote from Major Leagues, the movie Major Leagues, actually Major Leagues 2 that I always fall back on whenever we talk about it. anytime I want to complain about my life. It's like you talk about nerdy stuff on the Internet, no matter how bad a day is. My life is better than whatever regular people have to do for a living. <laughs> like, all, like, do I wish I had more money? Yes. I had a different job before and I like yeah, this one yeah. better. So, yeah. you know, like this is, um, it's not bad, you know. Oh, I love that. I want to talk with you more, Chris, specifically about your affection for X-Men, but I think I want to sort of do that when we talk about your book, Queering Wolverine, and some of the stuff you're going to talk about there. So maybe, well, let's do our issue summary first and then come back to that. And then we can relate your wonderful research to some of the themes of this <laughs> comic book story that I'm anxious to talk about. So let's get through that summary. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd share a horse with you any day, um, as long as it was kind to the horse. I'm going to revise that. Important. But as always, let's start today's field trip with a plot summary. Marvel Comics Presents number 101 to 108, aka Male Bonding, takes place somewhere between Excalibur 54 and 55. As you'll recall, in Excalibur 54, Kurt mentions receiving a letter from an old friend, Judah, and says he's headed to Germany at her behest. Kitty asks if she can come. Kurt rather definitively says no. Our story opens in a circus in Weinseldorf, Germany, where a clown is doing a high wire act, but it's not just any clown, it's our old friend Kurt Wagner in disguise. He concludes his performance with a dramatic teleport to the stunned oohs and ahs of the crowd. After the performance, Kurt spends some time pondering the pain of his inescapable difference before being joined by Judah, who leads him back to the trailer past a child seeking an autograph. A conversation between Kurt and Judah catches us up on the plot. Judah wants Kurt's help with a monster problem. A moment later, the problem's close at hand. A chalk-white veiny monster opens the door, looking for Nightcrawler. A fight ensues, carrying Kurt and the monster outside, where they encounter Wolverine! Wolverine and Kurt fight the monster and end up in a lake and find a quiet moment to hug it out before the fight begins again. This time, it's ended by the monster explaining he doesn't want to fight. He's there for Kurt's help because Kurt already saved him once many years before when Kurt killed his foster brother Stefan who claimed he was killing monsters as famously recounted in X-Men Annual number four. Turns out these monsters are part of the Nuri race who left their own world to learn about humanity. Most of the time they live in disguise as humans but Stefan, the son of a powerful sorceress, was able to see through their disguises and it drove him insane or something? Don't dwell on it. The continuity of this story is not going to stick anyway. Eventually, we learned Judah's invitation was a ruse. She was using Kurt to attract the monsters because she and a troop of genetically enhanced circus performers want to kill them since they hold the monsters responsible for Stefan's death. Who knew Stefan was such a popular guy? But anyway, Kurt and Logan fight the circus performers as the monsters retreat to the safety of a castle, which isn't so safe once the townspeople set fire to it. The monsters prove their nobility to the townspeople by saving some of their kids from the fire, but won't let Kurt save them from the fire. All the monsters perish in the blaze. The townspeople supposedly 
learn a lesson about tolerance and Kurt and Logan slow walk away from the flames. All right, let's kick things off with some first impressions, starting with our honored guest. Chris, what did you make of the story? Like it, hate it, anything that interested you in the story that you want to highlight right off the top? We'll say I liked it. <clears throat> But actually, only... I like liked it with a throat clear. I like that. That's that's the correct response. <laughs> but I think it took a couple readings, which which of course, like Marvel Comics presents, is somewhat disposable. So like, somewhat. <laughs> so it it uh, would it have warranted a, a, another reading? You know, if we weren't talking about this on the podcast, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my very first impression of it was it felt very fragmented and, and it, it felt very off. And then upon like two or three or four more readings, I was kind of like, okay, so, so there's some really interesting subtext stuff going on here. And even though it's a bit of a cheesy storyline, it was wrestling with some complicated ideas about in groups and out groups, which I think is a, is something I'm actually, I'm pretty interested in terms of like queer communities and, and, and this kind of goes into certainly what I'm writing about in terms of, of Wolverine. So I really, I really started to sort of like this story with what it was trying to do, even though I felt like by the end, the, you know, the suicide of the monsters felt a little heavy handed in, in terms of what it was trying to do. Like, oh, in order to learn our lesson, the innocents must die kind of thing, Yeah. Um, which, which was problematic. So, so that was sort of my initial impression, but I think what, really i enjoyed about this were the covers of this thing i would like to talk i'd like to talk a little bit about uh, sort of those covers too because i just kind of i love the way in which the bodies were transformed you know and extended in these really interesting ways um, well, yeah, so, we can talk. We can talk about about a bit about that now because I didn't put it on, you know, my notes or anything. So if you want to talk more about the covers now, we certainly can. Like, what particularly you said already a couple of things that interested you about them, but any particular ones you want to spotlight? That's one of the things. So to kind of go into my book a little bit, what really interested me about writing this project is Wolverine's body and the way that it often gets represented. And so I'm I'm fascinated by one of the you know i'll call it the uh, sort of ugly aesthetic of wolverine mm. um that you know if we go with the premise that you know the superhero bodies are supposed to be very hot and sexy and spandexed and you know curvy and very whole wolverine's body is not even though he's sort of musculature like, he's very muscular <laughs> musculature <laughs> well, he's very muscular. the commentary on his body is that he's ugly to the point where the, that's often internalized. Uh, and I'm totally going to forget where this is, but there's this one moment where like he's at a bar and there's a woman that's into him and he's like, I don't understand why she's into me. I'm ugly as sin, you know? So it's like even his, he, he like knows that he's ugly. I, I find that a really, that ugly aesthetic is very queer uh, in terms of superhero bodies because yeah. we don't get a lot of heroes that are, who are supposed to be ugly, right? And so- not only is he ugly, but he's also what I call kind of like too much. Like he he really flows outside of the borders of his body uh, in a lot of ways. Like he's punctured all the time. He's, you know, drawn sometimes as in, in, in very engorged. There's only like a few moments where he's drawn in a sort of attractive kind of way. Like I'm thinking about your article in Super Sex. I think that's where it was with the swimsuit issue where like, you know, he's 
Oh There's yeah, a, if it's my thing about swimsuit stuff, it's from uh, Routledge Companion to Gender and Sexuality in Comics or whatever confusing title it has. You've just wrote, you've written so much. I've read. I can't remember <laughs> where. Is that the one where the jean shorts are unbuttoned at the top and he's in his shirtless, right? And so it's like it's kind of looks sexy, right? But of course, it's like cut off jean shorts, right? Uh, but that's like a, one of the few moments where he's like that. Like most of the time, he's like tattered. One of the things that I'm really intrigued by is how often he's naked. Um, yes. And again, like. This, this this dude's supposed to be super ugly, um, and yet artists really love to draw him naked or nude. Like the recent um, Death of Wolverine, the Charles Soul stuff, uh, he, the cover of that one, he's being held uh, by death, um, and it's like a full ass shot almost, mm-hmm. um, and like huge quads, right? But he, and he's totally naked. The end of um, Weapon X, he's wandering off in the snow, and he's naked. So it's like there's all these moments where. Artists love to to draw him naked, and yet, right, he, he's ugly. So I I think that's a really interesting um, response. Which, and then you know, you move further along into the '90s, and like you get Feral Wolverine, um, and he's super engorged and monstrous and beastly. And again, these artists sort of play with his body. And then you've got the covers of these the these Keith covers. Not only is Wolverine drawn in very disproportionate ways to sort of underscore i think again it's it's queer body but like even the costume is extended like his his cowl has these big horns but also it carries over to nightcrawler who's very elongated and very thin and and i think it's like this underscoring of those mutants is different these mutants is as queer in relation to the people around them uh, but it does kind of draw you in, and I, and I agree with what Mav was saying a little earlier. Like, it's disappointing that that stuff didn't carry into the stories themselves, because it's like these, these the promise of these like tale, <laughs> the, the erotic tale stuff, or the um, like the more of the forest things. Um, they're on trees and stuff. This this you know wildness uh, in their bodies. So that, so I really was a tr- that was what I really drew me to these stories were these pretty wild covers and the ways that the artist was sort of shaping their bodies. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the thing that I like about the way that they're both monstrous in some ways on those covers is the way that their monstrous is, is like articulated differently. So you mentioned, you know, sort of like the thinness of Nightcrawler and those images and stuff. I mean, it like emphasizes sort of a symbolic contrast between them, but also like a shared monstrousness that kind of is articulated differently. And I think that that's really symbolically effective for the relationship between these two characters that we see in general but you know potentially in this particular story as well the the thing i kept thinking about as you were just saying all those wonderful things was i'm also very fascinated by wolverine's body in terms of when we're supposed to find it attractive and when we're not supposed to find it attractive and of course that's bound up in intertext as well you know it's hard to know how much like the portrayal of hugh jackman changed the way wolverine was portrayed in comics because he's still drawn so differently depending on what comic you're reading but i'm just very interested in that question of like whether we're meant to think that he's attractive because i can think of scenes like in claremont's like new x-men from like 2006 or 7 and there's a scene with kurt and logan in like a coffee shop and kurt's like sort of bemoaning like his unattractiveness in a way but then logan's like i don't know girls find you super hot just like hit that and he's like oh i don't know and then like kurt's like easy for you to say like to logan and i'm like well, what does that mean like is right. he saying that logan has an easier time with women than he does i mean they actually both get laid a lot <laughs> so like right. i think maybe if anything it's a commentary on like they don't actually know what women find attractive <laughs> 
and I, well, you know, while you're talking to him, I'm thinking about like other examples of where he's like, what do you do with Frank Quitely's art? Yeah. Right. I mean, like, so they, he, you know, the leather and the, the, the new X-Men stuff, right. He's got the leather on and it's the, no shirt underneath, but like his face is drawn in a very, we'll call it sort of a beastly style kind of thing. Mm. Um, another great example of this is like the Kent Williams stuff in um, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, mm. where Wolverine is just like, it looks like it. I don't even know what that is. It's like, he's very elongated. His hair looks like a jester's cap. He's got whiskers coming out of everywhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, So it's like, we're not supposed to think he's attractive there, especially in relationship to Havoc where John, I think it was John Newth, right? It's John Newth used, uh, James Dean as his model for Havoc. So like they were playing off attractive, unattractive, but the woman in the middle of that story, even though it's you later find out she's playing the both, but like is attracted to Wolverine. So it's yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Like how do, <laughs> that's, and again, maybe this is what makes Wolverine enigmatic and, and queer is like, it's, he's very difficult to read in terms of when we are supposed to identify with him or disidentify with him. You know, it, you've got the violence stuff, but you also have the nurturing stuff. That's what I mean. I think about when I say like, he's t- this too muchness about him. Like it, he overflows any kind of characteriz- characterization. It's often times difficult to get a bead on him. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, like there's so much I like want to talk about in terms of like, I don't know the way various people identify with Wolverine in terms of some of these things that you're bringing up. Like it's like, I know a lot of women really like Wolverine actually because of these features of his quote unquote ugliness sort of as a point of identification in a lot of ways, because he's a character who's troubled by his own body. And like some people read a femininity into that. And, you know, there are various sort of trans readings of Wolverine along those lines as well. And the character of Lobo, there's a lot of like readings of that character as well. Like when they did the thing where they made Lobo like super hot a while back. And, <laughs> and there was a lot of interesting dialogue about that because like, you know, I saw a lot of female fans being like, that's not what I asked for. I liked the old Lobo. That was actually a thing that we liked. And you're misguided in what you think that we like. And when I say we, that's not everybody. Everybody's got very different tastes, but it's certainly, there was a female fandom for Lobo that was <laughs> not necessarily acknowledged also, in that redesign of the character. There was also 100% a queer male fandom for yes, Lobo. That yes. Was not, <laughs> it was not acknowledged in that reason. I mean, Lobo was a big bear of a man mm-hmm, canonically. Mm-hmm. I want to build off that because, you know, we've just because of my intro where I where I said about Sam Keith, you know, may I tell you the good news of Sam Keith as it were, <laughs> I want to evangelize him <laughs> a little bit. Um, I have a slightly different take on how Wolverine's presented in that, you know, how ugly is he supposed to be? I don't think he's Lobo, which is to say it depends on the artist. Lobo, the, what made that break happen that Anna is talking about is Lobo was canonically just ugly. He was a beast of a deformed character. And Wolverine's only sometimes that. There are some artists who draw him far more attractive than others. In my mind, Wolverine should be a not quite, he's not, he's not as short as Puck. He doesn't have actual dwarfism. But he is a stubby, very small, very large man, right? He's very short and very wide, and he's hairy. And I just think of him as a brute of a, you know, bouncer. But Jim Lee never drew him that way. Jim Lee's Wolverine is hairy, but I would say conventionally attractive in 
the way that all of Jim Lee's characters are. Yeah. Like, I don't think I don't think Wolverine under Jim Lee, who did a lot of X-Men and is probably the definitive artist still for many people. I don't think Lee's Wolverine is any less attractive than Cyclops or Havoc. You know, they're just, they're all very buff, you know, muscular the guy that Jim Lee draws. And I'm a Jim Lee fan. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to take that out. On the other hand, what I like about Sam Keith, and this goes back to uh, what Chris was talking about at the very beginning is I love Sam Keith's version of what attractive and unattractive are and how they bleed into each other. Um, this is what makes the max work, right? I don't know if anybody's read this. I just by the reaction, clearly Andrew has read it. Um, the max has, three or four depending on how you look at it main characters but the main female character at least at the beginning of the max is julie and julie is the hot girl except that julie very particularly has she's got kind of a pot belly she's not attractive in the ways that the hot girl is drawn in 1990 by every other artist. It's what makes Sam Keith interesting. The Max is this deformed character because he's large and expressive and he's got massive feet. Like in, in many ways, the what you're seeing on these covers here with um, with Logan's body are portrayals of what will become the Max. And Kurt is closer to what Keith will do with Mr. Gone, this much skinnier, lither character who's not Kurt at all. He's evil, in fact. But I think Keith is very much trying to trying to very intentionally experiment with the idea of what is attractive to one person is not the same as what's attractive to other person. And the default superheroic body, which he is entirely capable of drawing, I've seen him do it, but he doesn't. He chooses not to because he wants to play with alternate representations and that's sort of i mean i made the joke about it it's sort of the promise of the covers of this and it's not carried through and that's kind of i think his artwork would have served this story very well had he had the opportunity to and that's kind of one of the one of the flaws yeah not to say anything against colin but i think keith would have been perfect for what this is trying to do and that's kind of the weirdness sort Oh, I totally agree with you intellectually, but emotionally, I do not. <laughs> oh, do you not like Keith or do you not like No, I like Keith. It's just that the sensuality of Colin's pencils for this okay. story, I think, feeds into the romanticism that I like in this story. And it I would not be the same if it was Keith. Okay. It would be a more cerebral, less romantic story to me if it was Keith. Oh. I think I think Max is very romantic. I think it's very romantic, but it's different. It's I see. Different. It's it is it is different. It is different. And to be fair, I mean, I mean, I'm obviously a Sam Keith fanboy. I love his work, so I'm maybe more forgiving there than I. It's it's an unfair comparison to ask me to choose between Keith and Colin because I will always oh, yeah, choose yeah, Keith, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, like that's yeah. that's the problem. So so the, I mean, I don't think I don't think that makes me right. It makes me a fanboy. I think <laughs> the men in this story would feel less touchable if Keith drew them. Is that fair? Depends on who the man is. Yeah, that's true. Touches. That's true. I, for, and, like, for me, again, I should, I should yeah, say for yeah. me, because that's subjective. Yeah. 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 I, I see. I see your point. It would not be. I don't like Colin's Wolverine, for instance, at least not here. He's distorted in not the correct way for yeah, the way yeah. I for the way I envision what Wolverine's supposed to. Um, his Kurt is fine. I don't love Keith's Kurt on the on the cover. I don't I mean I like it, but I just think that had he had more opportunity to practice and refine it, I think you would have been you would have had more. Because what's interesting is from um cover to cover, and there's eight issues. 
he seems to be experimenting with how he draws Nightcrawler more than he's experimenting with how he draws mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Wolverine from cover to cover. I think there's a little bit of, uh, maybe I'll try a little square of a jaw. Maybe he's a little taller. Nope, that's not working. You know, <laughs> there's yeah, like, yeah. And, and like, uh, it's like, ah, uh, maybe the, the hair is just alive now. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's that kind of thing happening. Well, let me bring you into the conversation, Andrew, because we sort of got into talking about queer Wolverine, so let's just continue. But um, yeah, well, I mean, what's your t- what's your response to some of these propositions about how we read Logan? You've obviously talked about his masculinity many times on the Claremont run. Yeah, I think I agree with Matt. I think it's variable according to the artist. And I think it's a really good example of where the artist has a massive impact on how Wolverine as a character is interpreted. Like we can go down the list. Cockrum, he's ugly. Burns, yeah. he's pretty. Burns pretty. Uh, yeah. Paul Smith, sort of somewhere in between. Ramita, ugly mm, again. Okay. Silvestri, pretty again. Yeah, it's just so it's up to the artist. For me, I think the question that, that we're kind of driving towards is, is how are we reading the story if we're talking about, you know, the artist's contribution? We talked about the queer subtext. To me, Sam Keith would be ideal for that because I think Keith can do visceral. Uh, and I think Mav would agree with that. And I think he can do surreal, which often reads as queer, um, yeah. which I, I really like. But if we're talking about the literal story, which is, um, you know, uh, this gothic German monster story, that's Gene Colan, like like 100%. That's what Colan does really, really well. So for me, this leads us to the question of like, what is the intention of this story? Yeah, is this yeah. this sort of, you know, queer love story or is this accidentally that? And I am profoundly puzzled by Lovedell's intent when it comes to what he was trying to do in this story, because I can read it either way. I can't. I it, can't believe he's doing it on purpose. I. I just. I, I can't believe that of Lobdell. But yeah. yeah, I've read too many Lobdell stories to believe that he is intentionally writing a queer story between Wolverine and Kurt. I remember when I was the most obsessed with Top Gun, maybe around the age of fifteen, mm. uh, and I was just like at this point where I'd seen Top Gun so many times at that point, I'd probably seen Top Gun about 12 times. I'd seen it so many times at that point, And my friends and I had even gotten together, made a parody movie and stuff. We were like obsessed with Top Gun. <laughs> this is a real thing. It's That's lost to time. I, uh, I played, I played Maverick. We can, we can, we can do it. We can do it again. <laughs> I know we can remake Danger it. Zone. We, we, we can remake this. <laughs> but anyway, but I just got to the point where I was like, there's no way this movie wasn't queer on purpose. I, I just, oh, God, it's no, incomprehensible to me that it wasn't yeah. queer on purpose, but it isn't right. And you just, it breaks your brain no, a is. little bit. I'm certain. <laughs> I'm, I'm no I, Top Gun. See, and I think that's different. I don't think Labdell's doing it on, on purpose. I think Top Gun is written and okay la mort de la tour the dead author's dead it doesn't actually matter we can read things however that said i think top gun is very aware of the queer tropes that it is borrowing from the 80s i was aware of how gay top gun was when i watched it in the 80s like it was clearly doing like there's just like they don't have to take their shirts off and play volleyball. That scene does nothing for the plot of the movie. It's there because they want to be looked at. It is a queer gazy scene and it serves no other purpose. It certainly doesn't need to be as long as it is, except that it does because it makes Top Gun magical. It doesn't have to be set to, it doesn't have to be set to the song playing with the boys. Right. It's, it's literally like Top Gun 100% knows what they're doing. Saturday Night Fever knows what it's doing and i think top gun knows what it's doing in the same way 
I sometimes encounter readings of Top Gun, though, where I'll just see someone say, like, Top Gun, an obvious PR job for the military. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> that true. true. <laughs> but I just, isn't the primary reading the gayness of Top Gun? I, that's the reason no, I think people remember it, right? I think it's both. Weirdly tangenty. No, I know. Well, it's relevant, right? <laughs> Top Gun is relevant here because Top Gun, I think, is like, I think the producers and the, or I don't know about the producers, I think the directors of Top Gun, and I think even Tom Cruise starring in Top Gun, knows that they are using very gay tropes in this thing that is fetishizing the military during Cold War America. Like it knows what it's doing in a way that I think all of that together is, I think, what makes Top Gun work. I think it would be a disservice to read Top Gun and ignore its placement of, you know, America as the savior of the world during the Cold War. That's what the story is of Top Gun is. But I also think it's equally a mistake to ignore the fact it is about two men who love each other playing volleyball. While they <laughs> while they both have a mutual crush on the other guy with shirtless guy playing volleyball with um with Iceman and okay I guess we'll give him a woman to sleep with in a scene sure just keep it dark so you don't have to look at anything because remember yeah. the the love scene in Top Gun is not in the original cut of the movie they edited yeah. that in later because Ooh. people were like this movie's awfully gay is it a it's a little too much so they had to go back and re and add a scene add a love scene to make it a little straighter because people were like worried about how gay it was. Like well, that's the thing that happened. And she's like, not her, her hair is the wrong color. She wears like, you never see her without the baseball cap on in that scene. She goes from baseball cap to all dark because she had dyed her hair brown for another role and they have to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. I know. I know a lot about this movie, <laughs> but anyway, well, I think her, that, I think that matters here too. I think that um, to Andrew's point, I think this is both, a queer love story and a horror story. I don't know that I don't know that Lobdell knows it's a queer love story, but I don't know that that matters. Well, let me bring Chris back into the conversation to turn our analysis to the comic at hand. Like, how did you feel about the subtext in this story, Chris? I mean, you can answer the intentionality question if you want, but also let's just start talking about some moments from this comic. You know, we keep saying it's a very queer story. What about this story advertises itself about a, as a very queer story? Is it the themes? Is it the art? Is it particular moments? Is it the way the relationship between the characters works? What do you think? So I, I want to go with... Um themes and um, scenes, I, I think it, it really struck me as, as, as what's particularly queer about this. The one scene that really stuck out to me is the, is the coming out of the water scene. Yeah. Um, those three, those three panels are really interesting. And I, I had to go back uh, a couple times to look at those because the way that both Kurt and Wolverine come out of the water is very, is very se like sexy. You know, like there, there's this like, <laughs> where, where they emerge from the water before they hug. Um, and it's this really interesting way that they're drawn that was like, oh, that's 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 pretty queer right there. Um, and then they and then they hug. What's interesting about those scenes too is sort of inability to address the problem, I think, of you know, Wolverine had pretended that he was dead, and this is the first time that they're actually interacting in person, even though they're best friends, right? I don't know if it's written all that well to allow them to have that reunion, but the art does it. Yeah. Um, 
instead. So it's like Lobdell didn't know how to write their friendship again. And and, and there's this, these really odd comments too that Wolverine makes in the narration too, like my old best buddy, like my former friend, you know, like those it's, it's these really strange phrasings when it's like, is the friendship really dead? This story is supposed to be called male bonding. Aren't they supposed to be bonding about something? Which I think is another um, subject we could talk about too. I had this question of like, what are they actually bonding over? What is male bonding? Mm. <laughs> um, and and I don't, I'm not going to, I don't know about intentionality in this. I, I don't think this was intentional. But one of the interesting things I, I thought of that was about this story was you've got three groups of outsiders, basically. And so it's, I feel like it was this really interesting commentary on queer community. And how to be queer, who is allowed to be queer and visible, um, and who it has to hide. And so, you know, there's there's this interesting parallel between things that Nightcrawler says and things that the Nuri father says, like that almost mimic each other. Like there, there's that really interesting, I uh, uh, forget which issue number it is, but he comes... He's being attacked by the villagers. He said, I came upon you to learn about your humanity and all I've learned from you yeah. is violence. And yeah. so this is what I'm going to give you. So, when, so of course, Nightcrawler, you know, fights them. And then the father in the end says almost the exact same thing, but he chooses to, you know, just die with his, with his community. As in, like, the, the monsters have no place in this, in, you know, in this queer community. But I think the other thing that is interesting is that you've also got the circus performers who you could argue, I mean, are kind of liminal members of society as well and, and queer in all kinds of different ways. I mean, we've got, even despite their genetic modifications, you've got these <laughs> squishy boned clowns and you've got the bearded lady and you've got fiery Jetta. <laughs> so they've like made themselves even more queer um, than they were as circus performers. But like, they don't like the monsters because the monsters can hide or they can blend in yeah, or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's kind of all it's about. I mean, I mean, I know there's the Zardo stuff too, but that seems to be their big problem because the monsters kind of indicate that they are, you know, they're just trying to farm. They're peace loving. They, they don't perform violence. Um, and so you've got those two queer groups kind of fighting with each other about ultimately visibility and who, you know, who deserves to be queer is kind of how I'm reading it. And then you've got sort of Nightcrawler and Wolverine in the middle, and they're trying to figure out both maybe where they belong in terms of this argument at the same time as they're trying to figure out their queer bond again, trying to reconnect. And, and, and so they reconnect through action, I suppose. While having the sexy water scene, <laughs> I, I have the I have the water scene open right now, and if I could put a finer point on it, um, how it reads well, to me is like each of them has an orgasm face while saying the yeah. other's name. Yes. <laughs> Can I just add a complication to Chris's reading that mm -hmm. I think is maybe interesting? It's a question because I don't know. Do we read the circus performers as um, meant to be parallel to Logan's Weapon X experience? Because mm -hmm. there's some images that really look like it. And this is Marvel mm -hmm. Comics Presents, which is where Weapon where X was originally told and not that long ago. So I, I kind of thought there was an intended parallel there where you've got the monster society linked to Kurt and the circus performers linked to Logan, which is interesting because one's an antagonistic relationship and the other isn't. And, and you know, and it's interesting you say that, too, because I feel like Wolverine and the way he's depicted in this, he can't decide if he's who's the enemy, like who he should be attacking. Mm -hmm. 
and I don't, again, I think this is the problem with the writing. Like there's the moment at the beginning of the issue where he says, I can smell the monsters, but I can't see them. Even though like he learned that they wear human clothes, like, you know, like he's kind of, he's confused too about where his anger or where his, you know, claws should be pointed at, I guess. Until he finds out it's the, you know, it's the, it's the murderous circus circus group so so like even his representation is a little strange like he doesn't know where he belongs in his own queer community in a certain way and i'm not sure if that's i'm not sure why that is in the storyline but i'm not sure if kurt brings him back to that to to like his queerness or or what you know i'm it's a little bit unsatisfying at the end oh yeah the ending i think is very unsatisfying i feel like to me like the first couple of issues are my favorite and then it gets progressively less interesting for me as it goes Mm -hmm. along i mean i love what you're bringing up about disguise and sort of hiding and showing which is what i was thinking about a lot in terms of the queerness of it and the fact that it opens with kurt engaging in so many levels of performance you know he's performing in the sense of performing at the circus but he's also disguised as a clown so that people don't know he's a nightcrawler and then we get that very you know going into the trailer scene and stripping off his clothes and his tail ripping out of his pants okay. and then he get him <laughs> contemplating his difference anyway Mav you clearly want to jump in so go ahead well only because I I mean like so I mean this won't be my final thought now because I was waiting it's like well are we going to talk about the tail and I was like <laughs> clear, clearly Anna wants to like when oh but for the for the listener i've never read this story before this was a first time for me i didn't actually read this when you know when it came out so anna has referred back to it before but i've never gone back and read this until this week when preparing for the show so when reading this and we get to the point where kurt erections his tail through the back seat of the pants like i guess that's what's going on here i don't know why he would do that kurt knows how to take pants on and off like he's it is it is a it is a weird move that like like i see no reason to do that other than to show virility in his tail and that was weird but before we even get to that it gets weirder because this is one of the things that this is where i decided i wasn't um happy with colin's art for this but but not because of the tail but because of the panel before that colin does one of the things that i most hate when people do with nightcrawler which is they treat his uniform as though it's part of his body Mm -hmm. like he's wearing his shirt under the shirt which would be uncomfortable because of the pointy edges of his uh of his shoulder blades like i mean his shoulder pads like why would you wear that under the clown costume that makes no sense but he does so then if he's wearing that under the uniform so i guess he ripped the outer pants with this tail but not his inner pants but like i can see his butt through the picture and and i and it just brought up so many questions for me and i was like this is odd but i think we'll be talking about it so i'll get to ask anna how she feels about it <laughs> that was, that, and, and then i and then i continued reading the rest of the book but that's where i was when i read this a couple nights ago i was like huh that's a a choice <laughs> that was where i was I think the tail rip scene is drawn weird. The tail is placed funny in that image and whatever. But I do like it symbolically. And we had that happen in an earlier issue of Excalibur 2 where he had his tail rip out of his pants. And then he had to like, it was in Excalibur 27 and he has to fight half of the issue while trying to keep his pants on. But I don't know. I sort of like it symbolically in terms of he can't contain his difference and he's so desperate to get 
out of this restricting costume and be himself again. And it works symbolically for me on that right. level. But I mean, there's also always the sexual symbolism with that colors too. So you can't get past that either. And I think too, that it makes, it draws like a direct connection to like the monster taking off his suit. Mm-hmm. So like when the, mm-hmm. when the monster appears, he's like, Oh, now we've both shed our human disguises. You know, this is what connects us. This is, these are our true identities. Mm-hmm. So it's like this, one of the things that I will say that I do like about the writing is I do really like these interesting parallels that happen between the characters, mm-hmm. right? He, he does sort of pick up on like these um, mirror images, right? So, so the characters will have these <laughs> connections through, you know, the ripped clothing or they'll say the same things that you're supposed to see how these characters are connecting to these different, different groups. That is the one thing I do really like about this story is the, the more you read it, you're like, oh. Yeah, they there's there's the connection there. There's the mirror image there. Yeah, that's, my that's... only my only complaint on that is there's like one sequence where he completely telegraphs that and the dialogue <laughs> is sound familiar elf and then Nightcrawler says, True, their plight would seem to mirror our own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's so bad I, I really have thought a lot about it because I really love this story it's one of my favorites and I just so much of it if it was art that I didn't enjoy that I didn't feel was sort of gothic and romantic in ways that's contributing to the productive queerness of the story I would have a totally different read of it because if it was just the script it would be really really different but I already have a deep affection for Gene Colan's art and particularly for Gene Colan's rendition of Sensual Acrobats from how much I love his rendition of Daredevil so mm-hmm. that's certainly a context I'm bringing to this as well yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that better than this which is why Marvel Comics Presents was a weird book it really was like conceptually what it was was a weird book from when it first launched I don't know if it's still weekly at this point when it's coming out it might not have been anymore wow. I was going to say, I, I, I do want to kind of defend some of the pieces of the writing. And this is where the intentionality question comes up for me. The opening narration, which is very insightful of Kurt's journey, is in Logan's voice. And to me, that is really, really intimate. Uh, and then we get the scene where he says, you know, I, I don't know what to say to him, but sometimes words aren't necessary, which is, again, really intimate. And then we see them having like bodily harmony uh, in the scene where he says, I will hit him high, you hit him low. So they're functioning yeah. as gestalt. And then lastly, um, um, Chris was talking about this, the idea of the monster just wanting to die with his community. That's perfectly mirrored with Wolverine going back to the castle for no reason whatsoever, other than to make Kurt's teleporting out more difficult. Because <gasps> oh, oh. uh, that's who Wolverine sees as his community, and he wants to die with him. So I, I do think there are pieces of the writing that, to me, are, are A, really good, and B, maybe speak to Scott Lobdell intentionally building a queer metaphor. It's really hard. I like intentionality questions are just like a bridge paved with, you know, like it's yeah, not yeah. a good way to get it, it not a good route to go down for, for like scholars. But at the same time, when you even think about some of the titles of like the chapters, like uh, part four, you know that we do it together, Wolverine and Nightcrawler. <laughs> like that's what it says on the page. And I'm like, I don't know another way to read that. I mean, you must have known how it sounds, surely. It's hard. Or is it, well, okay, so do we need to talk about, there is a point of, particularly in the 80s and 90s, but even today, where there's a point where you do this thing in masculine stories, where you kind of cement a homosocial bond by 
appropriating queer language, appropriating yeah, gay yeah, language. Yeah. You, and, you know, like it's entirely possible. And, there, and there's, to go back to Top Gun, there's this reading of this. No, that's not gay. That's guys doing guy stuff. To which parody will often point out that guys doing guy stuff can be really gay, right? Like, you, you know, so I, I think maybe Labdell's going there. No, no, I'm going to use the innuendo title. And it's funny because mm -hmm. they're straight. See, see, yeah, see what I'm yeah. doing? And I'm like, yeah, are they though? <laughs> you know, at what point does it become that? And I don't know. It's so serious though. I, I can't read yeah. that layer of irony or comedy to it. But I also can't attribute that level of intentionality <laughs> to i mean if in in a vacuum of where i've never read any other scott labdell comic maybe but i've read yeah, hundreds yeah. of them and I, I, yeah. honestly i think i think yeah. the most if we are going to go to the well of intentionality i think the most likely reading of it is that he would have considered these characters being in love in that way so impossible that he wouldn't have even considered the double entendre but there's enough moments to, i mean they're riding a horse together like that's mm, I know, there's a, I know. there's enough moments of it that I feel like it has to I feel like there's intentionality there but I don't think it's supposed to be taken seriously that's the only way I, that's the only way I can legitimize it in my mind because I might not be that much of a Lovedell fan but he's not an idiot you know he's a, you know he is a competent writer who just writes things that I don't necessarily always enjoy and sometimes I enjoy them more than others so he he's not dumb like, I don't think he's naive to where he'd be like, like, I don't think he's a Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live character where you're like, oh, does he not know what he's saying? He knows what he's saying. He's got to know what he's saying. He wasn't born yesterday. Uh, I can't see it as accidental, but I can't see it as canon either. Not canon. Yeah. You know, canon in a, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean, but I mean, it gets me so back to questions of art again, because if I think about the scene where they're getting on the horse together in issue 104, I mean, Colin chose to draw them in silhouette on the horse in front of a pink full moon, <laughs> like in a gothic landscape. Right. And there's a yeah. deep romanticism to that image, and it would play very differently if it wasn't drawn like that. So I don't know. And then when I think it continues on to the next page, you know, they're still in silhouette and the backgrounds are done in shades of blue and pink and red, like throughout this sequence. So it's just like, I don't know, again, that sensuality of the art, which is like both Colin's art and, and the colors as well, lends something to this story that I think is part of my fascination with this story. I don't know. It's one of those subjective things. Although, you know, I also have to point out what happens on the horseback ride of Kurt trying to leave and then Logan tugging him back by his tail, which is another interesting exchange that the two of them have in this comic book. And that, that's like a, it's also a jilted lover scene in a certain mm -hmm. way. Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I res I, all right, I'll respect your privacy, but get back here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're not done having this conversation. You can't get away from me. So I just, I thought that was a, that was, it was, it's kind of like only two people who are really intimate with each other would do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Especially if we're thinking about like tugging his tail, which would, which seems to me a pretty personal kind of appendage to grab, to grab Kurt's tail could offend him. Right. You know, but he's doing it like you get like, like he would grab a hand or an arm. Like you get back here. We've got more to talk about. You can't get away from me. I love you. I, I wish I knew the issue number off the top of my head, but there's a Claremont era scene with Kurt and Logan that often gets shared in slash spaces of them climbing on some girders and Kurt's in front and Logan's behind and like 
Logan's having trouble staying attached to the beam. And he's like, if I fall, I'm grabbing your tail. And then Kurt says, promises, promises. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which well, is yeah. like, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> <laughs> on, a, you know, on, a, on a side note, too, it's really interesting what fan fiction does with Kurt's tail. Um, oh, yes. And, yeah. and, you know, in Wolverine, in Wolverine, uh, in, in Logert, in Logert uh, fan fiction, I mean, it's it's a it's a, it's a second penis um, in a lot of a lot of stories, and it's this really interesting mutant sex, you know, double penetration thing uh, that's fantastic. Um, so you know, his tail has this excellent eroticism to it too. Oh, I could do a whole episode on that, Chris. <laughs> 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 I'm very fascinated by we have talked about this on the pod before I'm sort of embarrassed but also proud to admit but uh that there's a diverse eroticism to it as well like I mean I've seen it used for penetration and I've seen it used in other ways as well and I mean yes. I've even read stories where touching his tail without permission is perceived as sexual abuse mm-hmm. like that's I've definitely encountered stories like that as well and it's very interesting to me I mean that's a question of intentionality as well that again <laughs> we need to stop doing that but yeah I don't know the the, the things that the tail kind of does for you can really vary to depending on what your erotic interest in the bodies involved is. And I find that really interesting. And the diversity of things that people do with it is really interesting. Well, it does lead to, you know, since we're, since we're on the tail subject, what is going on on that one cover, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. all the other covers have them both in some kind of crouch or action shot where they're lo- either looking at the viewer or they're clearly looking at someone they're about to pounce upon but that one is from the side and the tail is completely you know wound around wolverine his arm and kurt is sort of reaching up and and holding him back or something it's it's a it's a strange a cover compared to the other covers which they pick them both uh, full, fully embodied. So I, I'm, I don't have an answer for that, but I thought, and I was trying to like connect it to what was going on in the story itself. But it, I mean, it's a fight issue, I suppose, where they're fight, they're fighting the carnival. Um, but Kurt doesn't hold him back when they're fighting the, the carnival murderers. So I, I don't know. I didn't quite know what to do with that particular cover, other than like read it kind of erotically or sensually, you know. Yeah, and I mean, ultra excess of Kurt's tail in that image with how long it would have to be to make that image possible, right? Right, right. I'm sort of a bit frustrated by that cover too because it doesn't really match what's in the story in the sense that, if anything, Logan seems to be the rational one throughout a lot of this story. Not holding Kurt back necessarily, but he's the narration, you know, he's the voice of reason and calm in the story a lot of the time as opposed to Kurt. I mean, not that Kurt is not those things, but I would say compared to Kurt and the story, Logan seems to be the calmer and wiser one. Right. Um, can I ask you, Chris, a little bit about like the Wolverine Nightcrawler relationship and how you read it and whether you find it interesting? I mean, it's been a popular slash bearing for a very long time in X-Men comics. I mean, you mentioned that you listened to the Sue Wisterfield <laughs> episode in preparation for this. I mean, she has been shipping them since 1980. So, and I know she's not the only one. So, yeah, I mean, what do you find interesting about this relationship, if you do find it interesting? Oh, I, I find it very interesting. Actually, the sub, the third uh, chapter of my book is all about fan fiction and uh, between amazing. the two of them. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, um, I've, I've, read, I've read a ton of, of uh, the Nightcrawler uh, Wolverine fan fiction. To answer your question um, specifically, I think, yeah, they've always had a really interesting bond. And I always, I find it really intriguing about how they kind of balance each other out 
in terms of like Wolverine will sort of encourage Kurt to have some more fun. Kurt will kind of encourage Wolverine to be a more introspective. And so they, they kind of feed off of each other in that way. I think too, like a lot of fan fiction writers sort of pick up on that subtext and do really fascinating things about that, uh, about the relationship. Like, like we keep talking about Sue Wisterfield. I do like a little, little mini case study on her stuff in, in this, in my chapter, because she returns to that story so many times that every time she finds something interesting to talk about, like sometimes it's sweet, you know, cuddles. And then sometimes it's just hardcore sex. And sometimes it's Kurt being dominant and Wolverine being submissive. And then sometimes it's Wolverine being, you know, a total beast. Um, it's crazy sex, right? A lot of the fan fiction talks about their sensuality towards each other. There's a great story in a, where, you know, it's all about Kurt's fur um, and how, or and Kurt's smells and how that really turns uh, Wolverine on. And of course he's got heightened senses, so the sort of, you know, fuzzy elf and all the tactile things that go along with that really, you know, rev him up. So, so I mean, I know we're, that's fan fiction, so it's sort of outside the canon. But, you know, there's moments like in House of X, Powers of X, where they really bond and, and when they're destroying Orcus and they, you know, mm-hmm. they have that very romantic scene. There's the um, moment where he saves him in that, uh, what is that, X-Men Unlimited, the... Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, <laughs> And he's drawn like, with hearts in his eyes. Yeah. His eyes, right, right. Writers seem and artists seem to like to play up their strong bond and but also, you know, it's it's got these erotic elements to it. I, I think one of the interesting things too, and just in terms of sexual identity, is that Kurt is always straight, except for Wolverine. Yeah. And Wolverine, I, I think Wolverine just canonically is bisexual anyway. Mm-hmm. He's in love with Kurt, he's in love with this person, he's you know having sex with all these people but like kurt you know kurt is is straight except for his sexual erotic platonic bond right all these different levels with wolverine so it's like i guess he's a wolverine sexual mm-hmm. <laughs> a sexual. uh but like it's like their friendship can tr- sort of blossom in all these different directions, right? Yeah, uh, I think. Well, can I ask you a question about it? Like, do you find that there's a definite sort of who's the top and who's the bottom convention for them in slash fiction, or do you find that there's a lot of switch with them? They're, oh, they totally switch. There's this really great S and M one where Wolverine's the the sub, and it's it's pretty amazing because it's like. Uh, there's like two or three i'm sure there's more than that too but there's these really there's two or three really great stories where wolverine's really into pain Mm -hmm. and so nightcrawler discovers this and then they just they go nuts um and 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 it's very this very consensual snm scenes uh over and over again but but wolverine is the the submissive while nightcrawler is the dominant and nightcrawler kind of gets into it too he's like Mm -hmm. oh you know usually i'm usually i'm on the bottom but hey now i'm on let's, let's try this out and they're both totally into it. So it's just, I'm also really interested in, in how S&M is depicted in, in fan fiction and how it is almost like a manual in a lot of ways because mm. it goes through like, okay, we need these consensual agreements. We're going to do this. And then it's just like, okay, here comes all the description, right? Yeah, yeah. I really, and there's a Wolverine and, and Nightcrawler story like that. Like, oh, so I noticed in the danger room that you're really into this. Um, let's try this tonight. And Wolverine's like, oh, okay. <laughs> let's, let's, here we go. <laughs> That's great. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that really interests me in terms of the slash fiction and slash fan art of them is the mutability of both of them. You know, Mm -hmm. it is that switchness of them. But I mean, you talked so eloquently about Wolverine's queer body, and we've talked about sort of the liminality of Kurt's body many, many times on this podcast. But that feeds into just so many opportunities to, because, you know, obviously different people with different genders and sexualities write fan fiction. So I'm only going to speak from my own, you know, personal, you know, experience as like a woman who's attracted to men. But the ways that you can sort of play with gender with those two characters in terms of slash pairings, you know, who's got sort of a mix of feminine and masculine traits in which moment, in which ways. And Mm -hmm. that's an experiment with gender and with the relationship between gender and sexuality. And those two characters to me are just so fruitful for Mm -hmm. thinking through those things and figuring out to me, if I'm writing a story, like what the sexual positions are going to be says something about the characters, because if it's a, you know plot what plot story the plot is the sex right so what positions the characters are going to take and what their sexual relationship is going to be to each other is a way of interpreting the source text right and that's why fan fiction is so fascinating it's like watching people interpret the source text and when you can see oh yeah that totally slots into the source text i mean i've totally written a fan fiction set in the world of this story before because it just worked so perfectly to kind of like expand that story and I think fan fiction just makes me so excited when you see how well it can fit and you're like man if you just squint a little bit you know if you just twist Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. this is such a queer universe and it makes you so excited for going back to that universe and finding more you know it's like an addiction (laughs) (laughs) yes Oh, I could like keep talking about this forever, but I know we've gone like kind of long already. So maybe I'll let everybody kind of do a final thought and reflect on some of the stuff that we've already talked about and kind of wrap things up. I'll come back to you first, Andrew. Um, Anything that we've been talking about that you want to come back to or moments that you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Uh, Maybe just in the characterization of um, the tension between Kurt and Logan. There's yeah. the scene where they have the the two hour silence uh, mm-hmm. because of a misunderstanding around pride. And that is very much a romantic comedy trope. Yeah. Uh, it kind of read that way to me. And it seemed like it spoke to, again, uh, emotions that transcended friendship. Yeah, for me, it's just sort of like the heightened emotions throughout all of these stories, right? They're always getting Mm. hurt and losing each other and reconnecting. And then the heavy weight of reconnection hanging over the entire thing of like, this is the first time they're seeing each other, you know, after Kurt thought Logan was dead and was so upset about it that he almost tried to, you know, commit suicide. So, I mean, just God, the heavy emotion about this reconnection sort of hangs over this whole story. And like the number of moments sort of in various cliffhangers where like the one story ends with like Kurt being lit on fire and Logan's just like Kurt and then you have to wait for the next issue (laughs) heightened emotions throughout Uh, Mav anything that you wanted to touch back on or did you have another final thought for us I mean just you know go read the max it's very brilliant brilliant. (laughs) I I, I, I agree with a lot of um, what's been said this episode I I think um, I want to touch a little bit on the intentionality issue. This goes to a lot of what Anna was just saying, um, and I'm going to, yes, praise Scott Lobdell, but like sort of unintentionally <laughs> so. I also have a lot of thoughts on the study of fan fiction and what makes it interesting. Uh, Chris was just you know, talking about Sue's work. I always question the idea of canon. When I used the word canon earlier, I meant canon to that particular story. I like to believe in the way DC currently is sort of treating 
stories, uh, which is if you read the story and you you enjoyed it, it happened. Hyper time, right? Whatever is canon is just whatever you there's too much um, history in 80 years of Marvel Comics and a, almost 90 of of DC Comics or something. It just goes way back too far. So what matters is what you want to matter. And I think that the power of comics is in being able to explore things like, you know, politics or history or emotion or sexuality and even if labdell's not trying to i think that exploration is here i think it's easier to notice this when you're not talking about presumptively straight white men um i i mean i don't know scott labdell's personal life and i don't care um but like <laughs> we we would question him normally because oh well he's just doing this other thing and you know does he does he realize what he's doing or does he not and i, I don't know that it matters Anna does know what she's doing when she's writing when she's writing fanfic about Kurt and uh, and Logan here. But Anna is never going to be a gay man. So anything that she always does is ever does with those two characters is always going to be, you know, investigating yourself and your own feelings on gender that you're placing upon that you're placing upon these characters that you can't. Like you might identify with, but you can't ever 100% identify with them. That's sort of the point. So I think that Labdell, whether he's intending to or not, is sort of maybe doing that a little bit. Like, you know, how much can I explore my bonds with other men in this story about two best friends bonding together on the horseback in a trip through Germany in a totally straight way? Yeah. I mean, I think that that becomes, you know, we're talking about querying it. And this is like, I guess, Chris, I guess this is your book, right? If we're querying this relationship, I think that the fact that it is written by a traditionally straight, kind of misogynistic sometimes author uh, is meaningful in a way that probably he doesn't mean it to be publicly. But I think that doing the reading is still viable because I think that I think that an important part of studying sexuality in, this is why I, I do a lot of work with masculinity, and I'm I'm not white, you know, I'm I'm black. I'm, you know, how straight am I? Yeah, you know, <laughs> but like, but like to the to the point that you're doing stuff like that. I think that there's a tendency to sort of be dismissive of the straight white man as though he has no sexuality, whereas in reality, I think he's maybe just as confused as anybody else, and then it gets glossed over probably by him as much as much as us and we're scholars so i think that actually doing that analysis of his work here is actually probably quite meaningful is what i'm getting at well yeah i mean you know the first thing that i won a scholarship for when i went back to grad school to do my master's was to for a project about you know rereading gender and sexuality in hemingway and Mm -hmm. what excited me about that was just you know the thing that we do when we are querying things like hey the gender relations in this thing were more complicated than we thought and that is productive because although that writer is a known misogynist or whatever Mm -hmm. understanding that misogyny itself comes out in complicated feelings about gender when someone is doing a complicated creative story in which characters of diverse genders are interacting and kind of bringing forth the visibility of that is important to helping us understand the true complexity of gender and so to me that's a lot of what we do when we're sort of reinvestigating superhero comics and being like hey actually these comics that we always talk about about being super sexist are actually really complicated in terms of gender and appreciating that they are really complicated in terms of gender gives me hope for 
the like I don't know possibility of like us accepting gender is more complicated in a way because even if some writers maybe don't know that they're writing a really complicated gender story they actually are and yeah I don't know I find a little grain of hope in that um did I have a final thought I don't know yeah I'll talk about the Kurt being a sad clown things I put it in my notes and then like I was just sort of like we talk about Kurt a lot on the podcast you don't need me going on another long rant about it but um I liked this little moment of Kurt being sad and I'm very sensitive about the word like shame when it comes to Kurt and the reason I'm really sensitive about it is primarily because of the way the character has been rewritten in the 21st century in and around having sexual shame connected to his Catholicism. I don't like that reading of the character. I think it's a betrayal of what was good and interesting about the character in earlier stories. I will never be convinced to like it. But I do think it's believable for him to have these moments of self-doubt and reflecting on his difference. And I like this little one here. I think it's perfectly fine for Kurt to be sad and not always be totally happy with his lot in life. But the way it's handled here, it's like he doesn't want to be someone else. He just wants to be accepted for who he is. And to me, that's a good read of Kurt. I've said before, primarily, Lobdell has an understanding of Kurt that I agree with. He writes the character in ways that I like a lot of the time, and I think that that was a good character read. So, you know, me praising Scott Lobdell, who would have thought? But I enjoyed that scene. Um, Chris, coming to you for the final word. Anything you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance to focus on or any capstone that you want to put on some of the things that we have talked about? Yeah, I, I want to go back to the moment, uh, and I forget who said this, uh, regarding Wolverine sort of mentoring Nightcrawler through oh, yeah, yeah. the process, right? I mean, he's he's the one he who calls said, him He calls him kid throughout, right? Uh, yeah, right. And he's, he's very... Like, Kurt, are you sure you want to react this way? Are, are mm-hmm. you sure you're, you're feeling this way? And that is one of the things that I love most about Wolverine. And I wish that more writers would do things with. And I think this is what kind of makes him queer, too, in that he is this this mentor. This and Like, he's trying to mentor people through their subjectivity in really interesting ways. And so when writers do that, like, I really love... The Kitty Pride and Wolverine, I, you know, I just wrote an article about that. I really love that Kitty Pride and Wolverine uh, Claremont mini. Um, I really love the way that he mentors Jubilee. I really love the way he mentors Armor. I really love the way that he mentors Quentin Choir right now, uh, which has been going on for years. And I think those are the moments where he's really interesting, where he's this, you know, like you expect, oh, you know, claws and snick snicked and, and, you know, okay, sure. That's the sort of popular outward facing Wolverine. But then there's this really complex, like, I want to show you how to maneuver through this mutant slash, I'm going to say queer community and, and understand how you fit into this world and how you, how you want to be. Like, I want to encourage you to be yourself. And I think that that's a really interesting way that writers write him. And I really wish that there would be more of that. Like this current run right now, I'm radically disappointed in, in like the way that this his representation is, because there is just not that like, I, I want to, I want to help you. I want, you know, I want you to understand, you know, how to, how to be not only a mutant, but, you know, in this world. Um, and I, I, so I think we get that really nice moment in this series in which we get a glimpse of that we get a glimpse of wolverine saying like his mentor self um Mm -hmm. so not only is he you know 
Kurt's lover and best friend, but he's also <laughs> helping him with this, this, this very, you know, like complicated family situation. Plus, you know, I'm back in Germany. Plus, you know, I've been tricked into into being here from with these circus um, performers. So I I just want to sort of reiterate, like that's the Wolverine that's really interesting to me um, when when he's like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I didn't write about it a lot, but when I did it essay on Wolverine back in January for Comic Book Herald, I was thinking a lot about the way that the necessary backwards character progression, because Wolverine is so popular, you know, that prevents him so much of the time from being the version of the character that, yeah, I totally agree with you. I would love to see that version of Wolverine too, but we have to see him keep reverting to someone who's not like that in the interests of having him be a mega violent character in a lot of cases, which is just, you know, how what sells certain Wolverine comics and yeah it's disappointing because I mean like the constant reversions are part of his character too but it's just when they've happened 3,000 times Right. sort of effectiveness right. of that you started because I get just this feeling of like I've forgiven him too many times for too many murders and I just it becomes a problem <laughs> you know there's a murder limit right yeah. right and I think that, you know, the thing that really inspired my book was, you know, House of X, you know, Powers of X. Like, one, it's like the one of the first few pages. There is this panel in which he's playing with, I, I forget who he's playing with, but he's smiling. And I remember reading that and thinking, what a, what a fascinating queer moment that is. We never see him smile like that. And it's like pure joy. And no one has done anything with that. Like, I was really, like, this new era of X-Men, I was really expecting we'd get a new kind of Wolverine, some someone who's, like, a little bit more emotionally, I don't know, solvent? <laughs> uh, but we don't. We, we haven't. We, we haven't gotten that, that, that moment. Like, no writer's really done anything with that. Like, why in the hell is he so happy? Um, and instead, it's, you know, this sort of distrust of Krakoa and, you know, stabby, stabby. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of boring. He's getting laid very regularly by several people right now, so that's why he's so happy. Yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, that's a plus, right? Yes. That's, that's a plus, right? He's 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 expanded his sexuality in all kinds yes. of different ways. However, we don't get a lot of mentoring scenes. Um, we don't get a lot of. For me, the the pinnacle of Wolverine comics is is the Larry, the Larry Hama stuff, um, and we get such an interesting cast of characters, and his representation is a lot more complex, and it's not always stabby stabby. So. Oh, well, at least we get that moment in <laughs> X-Men Unlimited where he opens a tube and looks at Kurt with definite hearts in his pupils. I will always be grateful yeah, that for that. Is, love that. <laughs> Agreed. What must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone. Forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now, more than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. <laughs> there are other worlds. This one is done with me.
So I think we will wrap things up there other than to say, Chris, our most effusive thanks for joining us. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of the kind of stuff that you get up to. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what work of yours, past work, future work, should they be looking out for or checking out? So I, I don't really have a huge social media presence, but if, you know, if people want to find me, they can always go to my faculty page. Um, I try to keep that thing updated. I've got the Queer Wolverine book hopefully coming out next year. And then I've got a couple more. I've got, uh, like you mentioned in my intro, I've got, I'm talking about Iron Man and and, um, and artificial intelligence and, and self that's coming out in a collection next year as well. And then there's, there's a couple other things I'm working on. A couple of other secret projects. Ooh, <laughs> secret projects. I love it. So th- that I'm working on right now too. So, But yeah, I'm just going to keep on writing about comics. I nice, love it. I, and yeah, we'll much. link to your uh, one about the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries. Oh, yes, we will Thank certainly you. do that. Well, I wish that I could be reading Queering Wolverine right now, but knowing that I'm going to be able to read it hopefully in the next year makes me so, so happy. And thank you so, so much again for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 57, For Whom the Bell Trolls, featuring more reunions but less equanimity as the X-Men team up with Excalibur with some rad Joe mad art. We had lots of fun talking about that arc. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via Twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you Andrew and Mav for another monstrous conversation. Thank you Chris for helping us storm the castle. Thank you all for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought for our music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. I'm sure I said X-Factor throughout that episode. <laughs>